I'll say, bless the Lord, if you'll say, oh, my soul, bless the Lord. Bless his holy name. That will never be me. That was the promise that spilled out of my 14-year-old mouth, laced with anger and resentment. I was sitting in my kitchen. My hands were in my head, and I was watching my father leave our family again. I just thought if I had enough courage and could look at the scene that was unfolding, that somehow it would change its outcome. It didn't. After a short explanation, some awkward silences, my father hurried towards the garage door and shut it. My mother, who is often mild-mannered and even-tempered and prone to protect her children from any signs of marital conflict, ran to the door, flung it open, and shouted at the back of my father, so you're just going to leave us. Her answer was the start of a car engine and the whining of reverse. That will never be me. Have you ever said it? Maybe the situation in which you uttered that promise was different than what prompted mine, or maybe it's eerily similar. But in an ironic twist of fate and the destiny of all of our depravity, only to get a couple months or years removed from that moment and discover, uh-oh, that sin is in me. As we've been there, there's the person who abused their power. There's the man who manipulated you, the woman who neglected you, the friend who betrayed you, and you said, that would never be me. Only to discover your reaction to that brokenness has a brokenness of its own. And oftentimes the default response to sin is to hurt and sin more. That will never be me. What do you do when you look in the mirror and realize you are the man? You are the woman. It may be a different flavor, different sin by a different name, but it's still connected to that moment. In the text that Jacoby just read, this is David's moment. Now, I was reading a historian who said this about history. Any great history book is simply this, a long list of mistakes with names and dates beside them. It's embarrassing. The same is true sometimes of the heroes of our faith in the Bible. It's embarrassing. There's a long list of mistakes committed by men and women here. You do know that's one of the apologetic arguments for the veracity and truthfulness of Scripture, is that if it was creating something false or made up, it would never have put so many mistakes in by its people. That it provides for us a clear, unadulterated account of the men and women who have done their best and their worst in following a God who does not change, who has mercy and kindness and compassion. To put this psalm in context for you, it's King David. He was the local boy, gone to the big city, had a great military and political career, had a couple number one songs on the radio. He was the pride and joy and restoring the town of Israel to its rightful place in the kingdom of God. 
and then he sins. He sees a woman from his rooftop. At the time, kings go out to war. He invites her to the palace. He has an affair. She becomes pregnant. He finds out. He invites her husband home. He refuses to go home. He stays at the palace. And ultimately, David gives orders for him to go into where the fighting is fiercest and have the men pull back. Uriah is killed along with some other soldiers. And in that moment, David does what any good and righteous political or religious leader would do. He covers it up. And he hides it. I imagine if you were to go back in David's story and pull him aside right after, let's say right after he's killed Goliath, okay? Thousands of his countrymen are standing by as spectators, afraid of one man denouncing Israel and denouncing Yahweh as the one true God. And as a teenage boy from the shepherd field, he comes up with no armor and a slingshot and he defeats him. If you pulled him aside at that moment and say, hey, buddy, a time's coming when you're going to be king and your men are going to go out to war and you're going to be a spectator looking at another man's wife on a rooftop. I think he would look you dead in the eyes and say, that will never be me. Imagine if you pulled him aside after he had been anointed king but was still serving underneath King Saul in his court and playing the harp to try to assuage the tormented spirit that was afflicting the king and said things like this, I would never raise a hand to God's anointed, trusting in God's timing, even though he had every right to be king. And in the moment after Saul took a spear to try to pin David to the wall and he just survives by a hair, if you pulled him aside and said to him, hey, one day, you're going to kill some of your own men to cover up your own sin. That, that'll never be me. Or maybe it's early on in his reign as king. And the power hasn't gone to his head yet. And he's just finishing penning the Psalm 101. And the ink hasn't even dried on the verses where he says, I will live an innocent life in my house. I will never look at anything wicked. I will never participate in anything evil. You told him halfway into his rule he would have broken five of the Ten Commandments and tried to cover it up. I imagine he would look at you and say, That will never be me. But each one is tempted when they are drawn away by their own lusts and enticed. Now, before we get in too deep here, because I believe there's some of you in here tonight that the Lord wants to shine a spotlight on your heart. And he wants to do a sin check for you. There are certain behaviors, practices, attitudes, addictions that you've been able to cover up for a while. But it's going to come out and it's going to be worse than you thought it was. And it's going to hurt far more people than you realize. And you're going to continue to try to cover it up until you're confronted. But I believe tonight, if you allow the spirit to do its work, it is protecting the future that God has envisioned for you. That what the enemy intended for evil, God wants to redeem, resurrect, and turn you loose as an unstoppable force in his kingdom. Each one of us is tempted when we're drawn away by our own lusts and enticed. That's James. 
Now, before we think, oh, lust just has to do with sexual sin. You're right, that's probably the primary expression of it. The Greek word for lust right here is a strong desire or compulsion. So what it simply is saying, that lust for every single one of us in here, sinful lust, is misplaced trust. It is when we trust in ourselves and anyone else but God to have our needs and desires met. So you got two choices when you're staring down your strong desires, your compulsions, and your lust, okay? Because every single one of us struggles with lust in this room. Whether it's for people, for things, for safety, for security, for significance, it is taking the good, godly appetites that God has given us and going to the one tree he's forbidden. That's what sinful lust is. Misplaced trust. You got two choices with what you're going to do with the lust in your life. One, you're going to say, God, this is a desire I have. I believe that you see it. Would you meet it? And if you don't, I need grace to sustain me when you don't meet it. Or you can say, God does not see, he does not understand, and he will not meet it. Therefore, I will get it met the way that I see fit, regardless of who it hurts or how it happens. Those are your two options with lust, okay? We clear sinful lust is about misplaced trust. And David's misplaced his trust all over the place. Each one of us is tempted when we're drawn away by our own lusts and enticed. And when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. David launches his cover-up Death and sin brings more death and sin. And what's really tragic about this tale is nine times out of ten, your greatest strength will be your greatest opportunity for sin. David's been blessed with this beautiful, strategic, military mind. He has become one of the military heroes and an icon for them. And we find out in Samuel, a companion text, it's a time when the kings go out to war and David stays at home. And he does so, he starts to have an affair, he tries to cover it up, and then he sends strategic military orders to the commander of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, put him in a place where the fighting is the most severe and withdrawal. Some of you may be struggling to know what your greatest strength is. I would say take a look at your greatest sin. Because all it is is the enemy taking it and perverting what God intended for good and turning it to evil. That is usually where you're going to be prone to be tempted most. It's covering up God's good appetite, ambition, or approval the way that he's wired you for your kingdom. And David, in a moment when he realized what he's done, now begins to have to peel back the layers and he has to open up with this. Have mercy on me, O God. Be gracious to me according to your steadfast love because it certainly is not according to what I've done. C.S. Lewis writes a book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in it, he introduces one of my favorite characters, Eustace C. Scrub. What a great name. Eustace is what British people would call a prat and a git. Basically means he's a jerk. Little bully, um, mean, obnoxious, unself-aware. Don't even think that's a word. I just made it. You're welcome. I'm unself-aware. <laughs> In their voyages, they come to an island. They discover some treasure that's guarded by a dragon. Eustace sneaks off because he's greedy and tiny and mean 
And he starts to hoard all the treasure as much as he can get, but then he falls asleep and wakes up and realizes he's transformed into the dragon. And he realizes that how monstrous he's been on the inside and towards others is now reflected in who he is on the outside. Isolated, alone, depressed, beginning to realize how he has treated others and an inability to have connection, he begins to lament and repent. And Aslan, who's the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, comes to him one night in his dragon form and says, do you want to get out of that? And he's like, yes. He says, then tear your skin off. He takes his claws and begins to peel off the dragon's skin only to find another layer underneath it. And he peels and he peels and he peels only to still remain untransformed. Then Aslan comes to him and says, will you let me do it? And I don't know if it was out of frustration or desperation or faith or all of the above. He says, go ahead. And the lion pounces. And Eustace says, the first tear was so painful, I thought it would go straight to my heart. The only way I could keep going was the pleasure of knowing the skin would be removed once and for all. We need the lion of the tribe of Judah to peel back the hardened layers of our heart, our excuses, the things we become complacent to and transform us from the inside out. David will say, you desire truth in the innermost places of my being. So I have to start with truth so we can start there. Then you will teach me a wisdom that I did not know before because I was living under lies and denial and delusion. Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions and my sin. They're ever before me. Against you alone have I sinned. Doesn't really make sense in the text. Maybe he's a little bit upset. Oh, you've sinned against Bathsheba. You've sinned against Uriah. Uriah's mom and dad are not happy with you. What he is saying, though, is ultimately I'm accountable to you that when I sin against other humans, I sin against the God who created them. He says this brilliant statement, too. Whatever you decide about me is fair and just. But I'm asking for mercy. I'm asking that you would create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. If it's all possible, restore unto me the joy of your salvation and create a willing spirit within me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I know you have the Holy Spirit. My question tonight is, do you have a willing spirit? Are you willing to go to the innermost parts, to the places where you said, that'll never be me, and realize you are the man, you are the woman? Have mercy on me, O oh God. Be gracious to me, a sinner. Turn your face from my sin. Blot out my transgressions. I had a friend who I worked in ministry with and his spouse has always worked in um, foster care, orphan care. And at the time we were working together, she was working at a children's home uh, for girls. And I was catching up with her, asking about how things were going and what she had to do today. And she's like, ah, today's closet check day. We clean out the closets. I'm like, like, girls have inappropriate outfits on. Like, what's going on? What do you have to closet check for? Like, it's too many clothes. She goes, no, we have to make sure that we remove all the food that spoils. I'm like, 
you got to remove the food that spoils. What's going, what's wrong with you? Are you not feeding these girls? Like, do you need to raise some more money? Like, this is not cool. She says, Chris, we feed them more food than they could ever possibly want or need. But for many of them, they come from fractured home environments where power was abused and trust was broken. And so when they see someone, even if they're trustworthy and even if they know that they are safe, when they see something good in front of them, they grab it and they hoard it because they believe it's only a matter of time before someone yanks it away again. Sin has orphaned us all. That when the Father puts good gifts in front of us, what do we do? We don't say thank you and enjoy them in his presence. We get as much as we can and we run off and we shove them in our closets only to find out they're going to spoil and fester. We're the Israelites, aren't we? Delivered from bondage and slavery in Egypt and on the way to the promised land. And one day the promised one is coming and he's writing a new story in and through us. But slavery is still in our hearts and we're afraid he's going to take it away and God provides us manna Literally, what's this? Flakes from heaven that we can collect every single day to meet all of our nourishment needs. What do the Israelites do? It's a good gift. It must be taken away soon. And they hoard and they take more than what the Lord has told them to take and they take it back to their tents and its stench rises up from the camp and maggots begin to breed. Why? They've abused God's goodness and his timing and the seasons of the soul. Later, Jesus would put it this way. Give us this day our daily bread. So many of us are taking our daily bread and robbing it from our brothers and sisters, hiding it and hoarding it because secretly we think God doesn't have our best at heart. But I want to tell you that through Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection, trust is possible again. Healing is actually possible. Regardless of what season you are in, even if it's winter, let winter do its work. Maybe it's a time to confront the cold, hard truths of your past and what's actively happening in your present so that God can bring spring into your future once again. Now, you can do what you want with this. I hope that you'll pray with David tonight, creating me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore unto me the joy of your salvation and create a sustaining spirit, a willing spirit within me. That's one option. Or the second option is hang on to your hurt, hang on to your brokenness, and just perpetuate the cycle. Pass on every single sin, brokenness, mean, abusive thing that anyone has ever done to you and pass it on to everyone around you. It may not look the same, but it's all coming from the same place. And your brokenness will infect their brokenness and their brokenness will infect their brokenness. And no one will ever see healing or hope because you were too scared. to actually trust Jesus with it. Or you can break that cycle. You can say, that'll never be me because I'm gonna take it before the Father 
And then I'm not going to hide anything from him. I'm going to ask him to shine a spotlight on it. And to begin to give me freedom and victory and trust and dependence like I've never known before. Amen. So what we like to do is preach the Bible clearly and then give you some soul space to respond. I just want to ask you the question, what did God bring you here tonight? Why are you out here in below freezing temperatures, <laughs> fighting black ice, Ugh. to arrive here tonight to hear Psalm 51 preached to you? What had your name on it and how do you need to respond? It's revelation and response. That's how intimacy is created. That's with the patterns of all disciples of Jesus. So I want you to listen in for that. If you need a couple guiding questions, maybe I'll just walk you through a couple places in Psalm 51 and ask you to talk to your father about it. Be merciful to me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Be gracious to me. Blot out my rebellion. Any rebellion you're dealing with right now? You got any sinful lust that's misplaced trust? There's something you're hanging on to that gives you safety, security, or significance that you know is not God's best for you? And you just want to start out with, be merciful to me, oh God according to your steadfast and your unfailing love. It's not according to mine because my love has failed the time and time again, but you, O oh Lord, all of your promises are trustworthy and true and find their fulfillment in Jesus. Maybe take a minute and think about what it is that you want to confess. Father, to create in you a clean heart and to renew a steadfast spirit within you. To go deep and do the transformative work that only he can do, but you can partner with. And to remember, maybe that's why scripture says, confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. Maybe that's why scripture says, commit your ways to the Lord, trust also in him and he'll give you the desires of your heart, your clean heart. Maybe that's why scripture says we can be transformed from one degree of glory to the next by beholding Jesus. And that's not just indicative of our salvation, that's descriptive of our discipleship. Ask him for a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit. Steadfast spirit doesn't just try something once and give up on it. It doubles down. It continues to return in repentance for restoration and resurrection. if you're brave enough 
Ask him to restore unto you the joy of his salvation. Oh, we need more biblical, Christian, robust joy. Joy that you've been set free and who the Son sets free is free indeed. Joy, you're not who you should be, but you're not who you once were. Joy, you can see the acceptance in the eyes of your Father because of Jesus. And it frees you up to stop hiding, lying, and creating smoke screens. But allows you to be fully known and fully loved. Ask for joy of his salvation to be renewed. And then ask for a willing spirit to do whatever he tells you. Amen.